Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Hello, good morning and greetings from a queue outside a pub or maybe a hairdresser's or possibly Primark, I don't know, as we start your week. I'm Andrew Harrison and I've got the Atlantic's Yasmin Sarhan with me. Hello, Yasmin. How are you today? Good morning. Yeah, you know, I'm somewhat awake, so very good. excited for this momentous day. Well, exactly. Yasmin is <laughs> going to be taking us through the stories of the week ahead. And also, it's the first day of Ramadan, so Yasmin is going to explain it all to me later in <laughs> Ramadan for dummies. So it actually starts out, we up at 4.30 this morning. No, so thankfully, Ramadan technically starts today, but the fasting will begin tomorrow. So this is my, you're hearing me now, my last fully caffeinated day. So enjoy it while it lasts. Good. So uh, tomorrow you'll be a a lot less energized for a month. I'm really groggy and miserable for like the first week. So it takes, it takes a bit of getting used to, but it does get better. But yeah, for, for the foreseeable, I'll be really decaffeinated, not swearing. We'll be with you on that one. So let's have a look at these uh, stories that are coming up. If you judge by the papers this morning, the country is still focusing on the death of Prince Philip. Each member of the royal family is coming out to give their account of his death and the aftermath. But it's one of those weird situations where the desire to give space isn't really matched by the material because nothing new is happening, is it? It's like, Mm -hmm. yes, he's died and it's sad. What, What are we expecting this week apart from possibly some Prince Harry soap opera about whether he'll come to the funeral or not? Oh, gosh. Yeah, so he he's actually here. He has arrived, I think, this weekend. He arrived in Heathrow. So he will be attending the funeral. His, his wife, Meghan Markle, um, is, is staying home on the advice of doctors because, as we all know, she's she's heavily pregnant. But, yeah, I mean, as an American who has yet to, I think, at least in my lifetime, or maybe not, but I was going to say, at least as an American who's hasn't really experienced a royal death, most certainly not in the UK, at least. It's been really jarring to see the wall-to-wall coverage and really interesting to see the documentaries about his life and stuff. But yeah, one has to wonder, you know, what more there really is to say beyond just giving the family the space and time to grieve. But um, I would imagine that we can expect kind of more just, yeah, hearing from family members um, in the lead up to his funeral, which is going to be taking place at Windsor on Saturday. Um, And obviously, I think a lot of people are going to be guessing who will be among the lucky 30 people who will be allowed to attend the funeral. Uh, We already know that Prime Minister Boris Johnson will not be one of them. You were right. You know, you, you don't, you don't have to be American to find the coverage over the weekend really weird. And there was widespread public anger that the final of MasterChef got preempted for the uh, simultaneous coverage on BBC One and Two of the death of Prince Philip. And BBC Four was suspended completely, which for listeners to podcasts like this is pretty much as bad as it gets. Do you think the BBC overdid it? Did they did they misjudge the coverage? Um, I don't know. I mean, I have to say, despite the fact that I was taken aback by it all, I really did enjoy all the documentaries and sort of the reflecting on um, Prince Philip's life. You know, I think the reverse, if, if it were the reverse and they paid relatively little attention, I think obviously people would be up in arms over the BBC. I mean, this is kind of another example where the BBC can't really win. Mm. Um, you're going to be um, bugging someone in, invariably. But, you know, I, I thought it was nice. You know, I mean, perhaps if they do another one or two weeks of 
of the wall-to-wall same coverage. There's only so many times you can hear about his naval career before you're like, we get it. He he was an incredible public servant um, and he's going to leave a massive void. I I thought it was fine, but I could see if, you know, if, if like Bake Off gets pushed off because of this <laughs> or something, then I could say, or, you know, I don't know, <laughs> the next season of Love Island, whatever else comes up, that's that's important. Yeah, well, we're going to be discussing it in some detail on the panel show tomorrow and continue, not particularly the, the death of Prince Philip, but the way that people have reacted to it and particularly the way it's, it seems sort of the vast polarisation in that your choice is either fantastic stainless public servant or, oh, my God, he's a terrible racist and a terrible misogynist. And it's mm-hmm. like, is that, you know, do you really need that binary? Anyway, we're going to be talking about that in the panel show tomorrow. So, uh, listeners, I'm sure you'll be listening. Back in the real world, it's haircut riots day in England, at least, as non-essential retail opens, people batter down the doors and demand, can you do something with this, please? Are you yourself going to be banging down the door of the hairdressers, Yasmin? Oh, I'm booked. I'm booked in. I'm ready two <laughs> weeks from now. I wasn't as quick as, as the, mm. the real planners who I think swooped up all the appointments. But yeah, I will be getting a haircut. I will be going for one last meal down at the pub today before fasting. I say one last meal. You do eat during Ramadan. You just restrict your eating hours. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I think you kind of have to just mark the occasion, get it out of your system, and then you can... Can this carry on? But well, can't you sort of later in the month book into a pub and say, please deliver this at 2036 hours? We're ordering it right now. Deliver it on the dot at this time. Oh, I've been in many a situation where, you know, you go to dinner with friends in a restaurant and you just tell the server, sorry, you know, I can't eat until 623. Can you please bring my <laughs> Diet Coke then? <laughs> Not a minute sooner. So we've been promised about £300 million of extra spending in hospitality and retail this week. This is clearly something that's been, you know, pent-up demand. The retail analyst Springboard is predicting a sales increase of 48%. PricewaterhouseCoopers says its figures show people have got more disposable income, unsurprisingly, because we haven't spent anything all year, and there is a pent-up demand to spend after a year of lockdown restrictions. Are you expecting this to be presented as a, as, as a, a major good news, it's all done and dusted story, or, or will we see a week of spending spasm followed by the realisation and the understanding that actually the economy is in a bad way and people don't really have the disposable income that they thought they had? Yeah, right. I mean, I, I think I think it'll probably be a little bit of both, to be honest. I mean, I think invariably with these things, especially after like, you know, a long, dark and dreary winter reopening and it being slightly sunnier, I guess, in, in sun, as sunny as you can get in England, um, you know, is going to be spinned positively. And I think, you know, having a little bit more freedom, obviously, we're, we're going to see a bit more movement and feeling like it's a bit more normal. But I think you're absolutely right. I mean, for some people, this was a moment of immense privilege in which, you know, maybe you could save a bit of money and, you know, just kind of um, hunker down. But for others, this has been really quite difficult, losing jobs, you know. So I I think it it will be interesting to see how big this ends up being. Um, But I think there also is probably going to be a lot of talk, both from, you know, obviously the government um, and, and health experts to sort of, you know, tamper down to try to be like, this is a great first step, but we, you know, that this, this is the start of a reopening process. So just as we kind of want to get out there and start spending money and seeing friends again, that we still need to be kind of careful and mindful um, that, you know, this crisis hasn't ended yet and, and that we need to act accordingly. We've talked about this a lot on the podcast in the course of the year. All the people who've been able to uh, sort of you know, take that time out and save a little bit of money and, uh, you know, learn how to make the banana bread and so forth. It's been very, it's been very much the middle classes. It hasn't been the people in the essential jobs, the tough jobs, the jobs where you can't do it in your pajamas sitting at home that have um, sort of experienced 
you know, what can lose to be called the, the, the benefits of this. Primark in Birmingham opened at midnight, apparently, and there were queues outside. So uh, we can probably predict quite a lot of those kind of, uh, you know, images on TV and in the press. When Johnson, though, says something is irreversible, he said this is a, a, an irreversible step. Do your alarm bells go off? I mean, Johnson also said that 2020 would be a great year for Britain. So I'm, you know, yes. I'm a bit um, wary. Uh, you know, I, I get why he feels like he has to say that. Um, and obviously we're at a point now that we weren't in previous liftings of lockdowns, which is that, you know, we obviously have a vaccination rollout underway mm. that's doing very well, thankfully. But, you know, I, I do, I think there there needs to be a desire to balance the excitement and being like, look, you know, we're coming out of this. We're not going to go back into it with the caution that like, if we want this to be as permanent as we're saying, you guys need to be careful and you need to make sure those cues outside Primark are still socially distanced and that you're still wearing a mask. So yeah, I think it just needs to be tempered, but I, you know, of course I, I think everyone is probably going to get a little ahead of themselves and just be really excited. And I think you could understand why. I mean, we have just registered the lowest death toll in seven months, and it was just seven COVID-related deaths in in a single day. And the the reopening does seem unstoppable. You you know, you you do sort of fear that there might be the sort of danger of a false sense of closure, that, you know, we've done it now and you don't need your mask and so on. You know, we could be in for another eat out to help out spreader event, but we just don't know, do we? We will find out. In Northern Ireland, there is discussion of reopening outside hospitality, eating and drinking outside. But the real story has been eight days of riots in loyalist areas. Dublin has called for a summit conference to help stabilise the situation. But apparently there is no enthusiasm for it in London. And Boris Johnson infamously has not reacted to uh, the riots in uh, Northern Ireland, except with a with a tweet and a very minor intervention. London has never really shown as little interest in Northern Ireland as this in my lifetime. Do you think... Do you think think the government has simply just decided to ignore Northern Ireland and let it just go its own way? Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of drawing. I actually had American friends reach out and ask me what was going on. And I was kind of surprised that, you know, though I'd heard like little bits and pieces coming out of there that I didn't even like, you know, I feel like not a lot of attention has been paid to Northern Ireland. And I don't know if that's due to like everything that's going on at the moment. But, But I also think, you know, it's clearly, I mean, given the scale of the violence, obviously some like pretty intense scenes. It is indicative of, you know, either a government or, or a people who have kind of just lost interest that, you know, maybe that just the the sort of tensions with Brexit and everything else probably just sounds like old news to some people. Whereas for others, it's, you know, there's this very real risk and struggle for them. It's, I mean, it was the, the irony that the, you know, the, the violence is running around the 23rd anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement mm. was really disturbing. And, and yet, and again, received very little attention. The riots have been largely triggered by the Brexit deal and the border in, in the Irish Sea, but a large part of it as well is, is resentment against what is seen as, as kind of special treatment for, for Sinn Féin over COVID, relation, uh, COVID regulations and isolation. There was a big funeral and no police action mm. was taken. However, it's been announced today that there's going to be a new cross-party trade commission looking at that border, looking at the Northern Ireland um, Brexit deal, and Hillary Benn is going to chair it. It's going to have a long list of, of um, MPs from all parties, including friends of the podcast like Claire Hanna and, and, and Leila Moran. The government has yet to publish its own economic impact assessment on the UK leaving the transition period. Is it now down to independent MPs having to do the government's job for it or to draw attention to the things the government simply wants ignored? It, it would appear so. And, you know, I think it, it's, it is really quite jarring that, you know, we spent years talking about the potential economic impact of Brexit 
And, you know, I mean, just so much time focusing on it and to have the government not kind of doing that work to sort of assess what the, the trade deal means for kind of the, the future of, of the UK and, and, and the EU and, and Northern Ireland's place in all of it, I think is um, obviously really quite jarring. I know it has a lot of other things going on at the moment, but this is obviously kind of a really big thing. So it, it is kind of cheering, at least to see some MPs like Hillary Benn and the others you mentioned taking the lead here. But yeah, I really think it does kind of say something that, you know, you need lawmakers to sort of take their own initiative to, to do something that perhaps the government should be leading. One thing the government, when it was the Vote Leave campaign, understood was that it's not about economics, it's about identity. And now here's identity playing out right before you on the on TV. You know, this is, this is the, the economics is the shell around it, but what it really is, it's about loyalist sense of being part of Britain and how that's been damaged by the, uh, by the border. Something we should look at is the David Cameron Greensill Capital scandal, which is worsening this week. Over the weekend, Cameron said he acted within the rules when he texted Rishi Sunak, but admits that there are, quote, important lessons, close quotes, to be led. I, I love the, uh, the, the the retro sanctimony of uh, important lessons. It's, you know, you know, when somebody says important lessons are going to be led, you know, absolutely know they're not going to be. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, the, the, our current administration is particularly shameless. Do you think that shamelessness is kind of, you know, protecting Cameron to an extent? And, you know, it's hard to make him carry any cam when actual ministers are doing the same and worse. I was going to say there there is such a hilarious irony because, you know, I was reading that Cameron had once pledged that he would regulate lobbying as prime minister. And he kind of had attacked this privilege in excess. And, and in a bizarre way, he's kind of honoring that pledge because what's, you know, he's he's said that what he's done, that he didn't violate any rules. And it isn't actually apparent that he has broken any rules, which is perhaps part of the problem. So in his own way, <laughs> he may be, you know, spotlighting the fact that, you know, perhaps the government should be taking a closer look at how former public office holders can kind of wield their influence. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, maybe it's not technically illegal to text the chancellor. It's just like not everybody's got Rishi's mobile number. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, yeah. His actual line from 2010 was that uh, the far too cosy relationship between politics and money is the next big scandal waiting to happen, uh, at, at, at which he added, hold my beer in 10 years' time. <laughs> I mean, it's the, it, do you think it's also the fact that this supply chain financing thing is so complicated and arcane? Is that also protecting him? It's quite it's quite a hard thing to understand, isn't it? I mean, my understanding of supply chain financing is it, it allows – suppliers to big business to get paid earlier in return for paying a fee. And Cameron was an advisor to this company, Greensill Capital. Do do you think the fact that it is, you know, it's not a clear cut thing that can be quickly explained. Is that also possibly protecting him? Yeah, definitely. You know, I I think there's, you know, it's the, the thing that I found really interesting as an American living here is kind of what scandal breaks the threshold Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you kind of see, like with current and former prime ministers, I mean, whether it's, you know, news of Boris Johnson's various affairs or or David Cameron's dealings out of office. I mean, in the U.S., when American presidents leave office, they kind of have a bit of soft power to work with. They get to kind of create their own presidential library. And, you know, it's kind of well understood that they'll they'll do all these speaking or engagements and stuff. But it's not really clear that former prime ministers, at least from what I've gathered, have a role unless you're, I don't know, Tony Blair representing the interests of, um, is it Kazakhstan? Um, or <laughs> lobbying on behalf of, of other governments. But yeah, you know, I, I think that point that you made is right, that, you know, perhaps it's just, you know, people don't quite under understand what, what it is that, you know, it, it's not like, it certainly smells fishy. And I think mm. that's why it's it gained a lot of the attention it has. 
is it the smoking gun that, you know, is going to cause the whole public to sort of look and feel like we really need to condemn this former prime minister? I'm not sure. He may well get away with this. I don't know. Yeah. That that point about what what is the point of former prime ministers is, is actually quite interesting because I've never known them to be as active as they are now. John Major and Tony Blair um, are part of the ongoing you know, conversation, they pop up a lot. But when Margaret Thatcher left office, she just vanished in a puff of smoke. Jim Callaghan vanished in a puff of smoke. They just seemed to be the thing that happened in those days. And it was the notion of them being similar to an ex-president was, was very different. But now may, may, maybe things have changed. Maybe maybe it's also because prime ministers are younger now and uh, they've got to do something with their time. As an American living in Britain, I, I should ask you about the Derek Chauvin, George Floyd trial um, and the things we've learned from that. What, what do you think is likely to develop this week from what we've learned so far? Yeah, so far we've, this is going to be the third week, I believe, of the trial um, against former police officer Derek Chauvin, who's, um, as we all know, has been charged with the murder murder and manslaughter of um, George Floyd. Um, so, so far we've heard testimony from a number of key witnesses, among them the medical examiner who performed the initial autopsy on Floyd, who said that, you know, Chauvin kind of pinning him down for nine and a half minutes in that video that I think kind of went around the world, um, was the main cause of Floyd's death. Uh, we've heard from, you know, police department officials who testified that uh, Chauvin's restraint of Floyd violated their policies. Um, and we've heard, you know, from a number of other experts. So basically, I think what we're going to see this week is the prosecutors wrapping up their case, which is effectively mm-hmm. trying to establish that Floyd died because of Chauvin's actions. Um, and then we're going to hear from the defense, which is really trying to undermine that argument by saying that there were other factors among them, Floyd's health, drugs, that sort of thing. Last I checked, the trial is slated to go on until I guess the end of this month, by which point the jury will then um, you know, take however long they need to deliberate and, and return a verdict. I mean, the atmosphere continues to be really febrile. I mean, over the weekend, a, a policeman shot and killed a motorist near Minneapolis, Brooklyn Centre, near where Derek Chauvin is on trial for the death of George Floyd, it says here in the New York Times. Elsewhere in Windsor, Virginia, an officer who pepper sprayed a black army medic was, was fired. I mean, and the details of that case were quite shocking. This is like a serving black soldier attempting to obey contradictory instructions shouted at him by armed police who ends up getting pepper sprayed. It may be a crash and reductive question, but do you, do you think things are getting better now that these stories are more front and centre? No, um, no, because I mean, you know, I, I think the way I see it is that what you just outlined here is that we clearly have an institutional problem, but at the moment it's Derek Chauvin who's on trial, not the police. Um, and, and my worry is that, because, you know, we've seen this happen before, we've seen pol- police be be charged for um for, you know, instances of, of violence and, and in this case, death that have happened um, under their watch. And what you sometimes find is this tendency to sort of, you know, really just focus on the one character and say, OK, you know, so even if, you know, say they we find this particular officer guilty, that that's done and dusted and we can move on. But I think what what clearly needs to be addressed is that, you know, you have police testifying that some of their own are violating their own policies and standards. So I think whilst, yes, we do have Derek Chauvin on trial, we really need, I mean, this needs to impact some kind of change. This needs to be a broader sort of look. I mean, you know, the, the police force effectively kind of has to be on trial and looked at being like, what what are they doing that is sustaining this level of violence? Um, and what are we going to do to fix it? You know, is it, if it's just going to be the case of trying every quote unquote bad apple, I don't think it's going to solve anything. Yeah, at some point you have to say, why are there so many bad apples? Before we go, as promised, here's Ramadan for Idiots, i.e. me. So, Yasmin, 
uh, as you say, the fast starts tonight, the month of Ramadan. For, for non-Muslims like me, what, what do we need to know? And how, how can we be helpful? And how can we be supportive? <laughs> yeah, so um, so Ramadan, as, as, as many of you all are probably familiar with, is a month of fasting, the holiest month um, in the Islamic calendar. And it's a time where Muslims, I mean, you know, people tend to focus on the lack of food and drink during the daylight hours. But it's actually so much more than that. You know, it's a time... For prayer, it's a time for charity. It's a time for self-reflection. Um, it's also in non-COVID times a period of gathering. You know, for pre-dawn mm-hmm. breakfasts, which are known as sahur, uh, for sunset feasts, known as aftars, and um, you know, for special you know communal prayers in the mosque. Obviously, last year we didn't have that, and I would imagine this year is probably going to be quite similar for a lot of Muslims. Mm-hmm. Ramadan. You know, breaking your fast with your family and friends was something that took place over Zoom rather than, you know, shared table. But it really is a special time. And, you know, it's it's a time where I think as Muslims, at least, you know, for me personally, you know, even if you're not the most observant during the year, even I think this is a time where you really try to just sort of focus um, mm. and reflect. And, um, you know, you're, you're, as I say, you're not just fasting from food and drink, you're fasting from things like swearing and, you know, thinking bad thoughts. And you're really <laughs> just trying to just purify things. So I guess my advice to the non-Muslims listening to help your friends, if you're going to annoy them, do it now while they can still swear um, <laughs> and while they can still argue with you. Don't invite them for lunch. Maybe invite them for, a, you know, a, a post-sunset meal, uh, outdoor dining. And yeah, and just, you know, and then, and, and you know, celebrate with them to the extent that you can. If you want to have an outdoor iftar or something, like take part in it. It's, it's a lot yeah. of, um, it, it is really a special month and I'm really looking forward to it. So I will miss the coffee. But and so we shouldn't be flaunting our pizzas and lunchtime burgers on Instagram. Show some, <laughs> show some consideration there. I've never had, you know, I've always, I've, I've had like colleagues and friends try to tiptoe around me when I'm fasting, trying to like conceal their cereal bar or whatever. I've always been a proponent of like, don't do that. Like it's meant to be, you know, a challenge. We're meant to empathize with people who do not have food regularly. So, you know, you don't have to make it easy on us. Um, <laughs> but But maybe refrain from asking us, so also water, like you can't even drink water because that's just the question we get all the time. And mm. there are many, many memes about it. So yes, even water. I'm just wishing you the best of luck with not thinking bad thoughts because I would have to completely <laughs> empty my brain of everything. <laughs> that's typically what risks breaking my fast most days is that tendency to just let out a quick curse word. Um, but I'm going to try to be good this year. So Okay, well, we will support you in that. It, it, it is a bit of a swizz that everything's unlocking just as Ramadan starts, though, isn't it? Mini Raman mentioned this as well. It's like, you're going to unlock everything at the start of Ramadan? Thanks for that. Yeah, I was a little peeved to see that pubs reopening was, under, was coinciding with that. But I'm considering this my last supper. So, you know, it'll be Okay. Fun. Well, best of luck with it. Yasmin, thank <laughs> you for joining me for Start Your Week. Thanks for having me. We'll be back tomorrow with the panel show. And there is a bit of news on the bunker. So please pay attention. We worked out that it doesn't make a lot of sense to put a podcast out opposite Oh God, What Now on Friday mornings. We realised that perhaps we were overwhelming you. So we're going to move Friday's bunker to the weekend for a bit and see how that goes. So you've got a little bit more time to listen and the podcast don't pile up on top of each other. We're going to start that this week. So from now on, there's going to be a new bunker from Monday to Thursday with a weekend edition that might be a little bit more weekendy on the Saturday. Thanks for listening. Yasmin, thanks for joining us again and we'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. 
audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.